Hello, hello, hello to a special bonus episode of the Can I Say This at Church podcast. A few weeks ago, Oscar Romero uh, was canonized, and I had no idea what that meant. And there's a lot of talk about that on Facebook and Twitter and all of the magazines. And it's a huge deal for a huge portion of the church. And I felt woefully inadequately prepared to even talk about it. And uh, a friend of the show and a friend online, uh, Paul Thomas, had written some great stuff about it. It got shared quite a bit. It was very informative and most importantly, it was very personal. And he had offered if I would gather questions, that he would spend his time trying to answer them and giving a little bit of his point of view of what it looks like. And so this will be a multi-part series. Here is the first part now. The other parts will be specific to the patron supporters. So if you have not yet done that, consider doing so. If at the end of this you're like, man, that, that may be worth it for $1 a month for one month only. I think though, if you're like me, I was taking notes and I enjoyed it so much. And so I really hope that we all can learn something. And it really makes me want to pay more attention hearing all this to the world that goes on around me. I wonder how much I miss for lack of not paying attention to the context of the world that we live in. But here we go. A bit in brief on the context and the life and the ministry of Oscar Romero. I recently posted online on Facebook a photograph taken at the beatification of Salvadoran Archbishop Oscar Romero. Now, for any of you who don't know what a beatification is, is it's a step within the Roman Catholic Church on the road towards canonization, which is the process by which one is officially declared a saint. Now, the thing about this photo that was cool, picture an aerial photograph, and it's just as far as the eye can see, it's men in robes and whatnot. It's priests and bishops and cardinals, and I suppose the Pope is there. He's got to be. And they're all sitting there during whatever the process looks like at the Vatican. And above them, there appears a solar halo. Christianity Today reported on it, the Wall Street Journal reported on it, and it was in Reuters News Service, and a bunch of people reported on it, and some interesting conversations arose around that photograph. I had posted it uh, to celebrate the canonization of Oscar Romero. Now, I'm buddies with this guy named Seth Price, and he is the host of a podcast called Can I Say This at Church? And we have an online face group that uh, maybe you ought to join. It's called Can I Say This at Church? Honest Discussions. And some friends from that group asked me some questions like, what the heck does this mean? And what do you make of that solar halo? And what is canonization? I wasn't raised Catholic, and some of the questions came from people who were raised to think Catholics were the enemy or wrong. Um, and so all kinds of interesting questions arose from that. So then I wrote a post about Romero, and uh, from the vantage point of someone, I spent about 10 years 
in El Salvador, 10 fascinating years that gave me a window into the political scene, the revolutionary scene, the church scene, both uh, kind of in the revolutionary Catholic Christian-based community tradition, as well as working with numerous evangelical churches, attending an interdenominational evangelical church myself, but doing tons of work with Pentecostal Assemblies of God churches and Baptist churches, as well as working as a translator for families of people who started the government death squads and people who would later go on to run for president. It's a fascinating time that gave me a window into all kinds of worlds. So back to that post. A Catholic magazine from London liked my post about Romero and what he'd meant to me is just a exemplar, if nothing else, of just human courage and commitment to the kingdom of God. He lived one of the most Jesus-like lives I've ever known of. So I kind of posted about that, and a, and a Catholic magazine from London reached out and said, hey, can we publish that? A guy who I'm, another podcaster I'm a fan of, uh, Daniele Bolelli, who hosts the History on Fire podcast. He's a friend of Joe Rogan's, uh, host of the Joe Rogan Experience and comedian, if you know who that is. And he reached out and said, whoa, can you hook me up with some sources to, to learn more about this context? And then Seth uh, said, I think was looking around and seeing, okay, so I've got these progressive Christian friends, uh, Mennonites and all the historic peace churches. They're celebrating this dude, Romero, and we've got Catholics celebrating Romero. And so what's that guy all about? And I had mentioned to somebody, um, you know, there's actually a, a movie feature film, 90 minutes long or whatever, called Romero, uh, starring Raul Julia. It was actually pretty good. You can check it out. So Seth did that. And he said, man, that left me with a bunch of questions. And I said, well, heck, I'm a really good guy to answer those because I was so plugged into those worlds. So maybe I can offer some perspective. So he gathered his questions and then some of them that were kind of crowdsourced from that, can I say this at church, honest discussions community, threw them my way. And this is me responding to them. And I'm responding by audio, one, because I wanted to some experience speaking extemporaneously into a microphone. I've done lots of talking to congregations at churches, and I've done some recording on a microphone. It's an altogether different experience just talking into one, and I wanted some practice at that. I'm also recording it because I just didn't want to type all of these answers. So here we go. The questions, I identified them as, as kind of being in a few groups. One group of questions was about Romero himself. Another was about his wartime social and political context. Another is like, what are we to make of this in retrospect? And then last, there were questions about canonization and sainthood. What the heck does all that mean? And, uh, you know, my, my tradition understood it this way. What, what do you make of it this way? Uh, we got a scriptural basis for this. Do you have a scriptural basis for that? And so there's all kinds of interesting questions that, and I realized in the midst of it, this is really cool. This raises all sorts of issues that are interesting to us as the church and as citizens of the United States of America today. Questions about U.S. foreign policy, about social justice, about the kingdom of God, the body of Christ, politics, the church, 
how and if those two should intersect and all kinds of fascinating stuff. So this recording is me responding to a big list of questions. And I think the best way to handle it is to begin with the ones about the social and religious background. First question was, who or what is the background for Oscar Romero? Okay, we'll get a bit more into Romero's life. And like I mentioned in a second, a second ago, if you want a really easy, digestible uh, way to wrap your mind around this man's life, which you'll learn more about in the course of this conversation. But that movie of Romero actually is pretty good. It's probably on Amazon Prime, something like that. And you can check that out. And it does a decent job of, of depicting him. But it's a 90-minute film, and it's right there in the movie. So I think the best place to start is just to zoom way out and take a very oversimplified half-millennium view of Salvadoran history in a minute or two. So 500 years ago, before 1492, when Columbus sailed the ocean blue, all in, El Sal in what is now El Salvador and all along Mesoamerica, there were Mayan people and kind of on the outskirts of the larger Mayan empires, which are in today what is the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico, as well as in Guatemala, been in Honduras. A little further south in El Salvador, there was a people group, a Mayan culture called the Pipil people. And so the Spaniard invaders came, and invaders is the right word there, conquistadores, and they were, came in a conquest for land and looking for resources. The resources they found in what is now El Salvador initially was they found their coastal plains really useful for growing a dye that's called indigo. Now, you got to keep in mind, this is an era when a dye, these aren't being manufactured by DuPont. They were big business. You know, there's a if you've ever seen, even here in Texas, which is where I live, on a prickly pear cactus, sometimes you'll see little white cobwebs. If you grab one of those white cobwebs on a prickly pear cactus and squish it, your fingers will turn bright red. That's the cochinillo. It's a, it's a little bug. And you could squash that bug and make a dye. And in fact, in Oaxaca, Mexico, at one time, there were 80,000 people just in the town of Oaxaca dedicated to harvesting this dye because it would get shipped back to Europe. And Impressionist and post-Impressionist painters were just wild about this new red. So I say that just to underscore what a big deal a dye can be. And in what's now El Salvador, it was indigo. Indigo is a plant that makes this bright blue dye. So the Spaniards came along and they kicked all the indigenous Mayan people off of those fertile coastal plains so that they could grow and export indigo. The indigenous people were chased away and they went up and they lived in kind of the highlands, the volcanic highlands, then skipped down to the 1850s, somewhere around there, a coffee market opens up in Europe. And so now suddenly the Spaniards want that rich altitude, uh, acidic volcanic soil on the volcanoes where the indigenous people are now living. They want that land to make coffee fincas and they take it. And you end up with a situation 
in which about 16 families own almost all, between 80 and 90% of all the farmable land in El Salvador. So then you have a hacienda system. These folks own the land, and then you have kind of landless, indigenous peasant class who then rents land from the hacienda to grow food for themselves, and then they sell that food, and then the hacienda owner um, charges them rent. Well, that's a market which figures out really quickly how to extract down to the last penny. You know, it's just the maximum that can be extracted from these people so that they stay alive enough to keep the economic system going. We need them to keep on growing our coffee, our indigo, and our corn. Um, but they're not going to prosper in this system, and they didn't. And there were skirmishes, but they were militarily overpowered. There were actually skirmishes, some of them, between the Pipil people and the cows of the Spaniards. The Pipil, they came from a corn culture. These are people who genetically modified corn from this tiny little seed pod to the ears of corn that we know of now over the course of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And it's everything to them and, and still is, interestingly. At the, at the end of a Catholic mass, when you have communion in a rural community in El Salvador, uh, instead of just a little wafer, especially during corn harvest time, they have what they call an atolada, and that is a celebration where communion isn't the sharing of a wafer and wine, but uh, it's the sharing of a communal meal to which everyone is invited, which, by the way, is quite a bit more similar than what most of us do to what was going on in the first and second centuries of the church. All that is to say, corn is super important to these people. And now you've got these Spaniards whose cattle are eating all this corn while it's on the stock. So you had some skirmishes that break out. They're like wars between uh, Mayan people and the cows chasing them away. And then, you know, that's, of course, met with punishment. But now you skip forward to, say, the... 20th century. And maybe it's not 16 families. They still called them 16 families in the 70s, 80s, 60s. Uh, they're probably 200 families. But the point is that land is super concentrated in the hands of very few. And in fact, it's illegally concentrated in the hands of very few. This uh, El Salvador is a constitutional republic, and they have a, a constitution that says no family or no individual can own more than I think it was 254 hectares of farmable land. Well, you know, when a group has a lot of power, what they do with their constitution is they just ignore it. Now, in the late 1800s, too, over in Europe, there was Marx and Engels and some people going, critiquing capitalism, critiquing the system. And that and that word of that critique, which is, hey, if you're the most ardent capitalist, it's a pretty legit critique. It's critiquing exactly this kind of system that's going on down there. And so a lot of people started thinking, hey, maybe things could be a different way. So in the 1930s, um, as a result of intellectual currents, but also a reaction to the de desperation of the Depression, there were a bunch of revolutions. And in El Salvador, there was an uprising associated primarily with the indigenous people led by a leader named Farabundo Martí. And 
it resulted in what they now call La Matanza, the massacre. The government of El Salvador responded to this uprising in a swift and brutal way. I think the population of El Salvador at that time was like 1.2 million people. That's something you need to keep in mind. The whole country of El Salvador is about the size of Massachusetts. And at this time had maybe like the population of like San Antonio. And the government just wham, targeting indigenous people, slaughtered 30,000 people. Um, And that's why to this day, so if you're cruising around Guatemala, you'll still see people in their Mayan dress and speaking Mayan languages, Cachiquel, Quiche, there's maybe 40 Mayan languages spoken just in Guatemala. Well, there used to be a few in El Salvador, um, largely Nahuatl. And today you can count the number of people who speak Nahuatl on your fingers. And when one dies, that's just one less person in the world. I mean, that, that in a, of a dwindling, very small number. So they went from one day to the next, before and after this giant massacre. Day after that happens, nobody's going outside in your indigenous clothing. Nobody's going to, no man who goes to work is going to speak his native tongue at work, um, Nahuatl. Everybody speaks Spanish, and it just blotted out indigenous culture really quickly. Skip forward some more, and or maybe now it would be a good time to take a pause and talk a bit about the church. Now, by inheritance, almost everybody in El Salvador was Roman Catholic. That's the religion that took hold there because the Spaniards brought it. And um, a big revolution in the Catholic Church happened around the Council of Vatican II. Vatican II Council took place between, it's a set of reforms in the Catholic Church between 1962 and 65. So if you're my age, your dad, or if you're younger than me, your your grandpa's generation, if they were Catholic, they went to church in Latin. The priest faced away from uh, the congregation. And um, it was Vatican II that put the Mass, the Catholic Mass, in native tongues. That led to not only the Catholic Mass, but Scripture itself. Um, It was no longer the case that, hey, the official right way to listen to Scripture, say, at church is is in Latin, but rather in your native tongue. there was a lot of kind of this was the process represented to a great extent in the catholic church uh people's faith becoming more their own as opposed to somebody something bestowed on them from the church hierarchy in latin america in this context people reading the bible in their native tongue made a humongous difference Um, in the leadership of the Catholic Church in Latin America, there were bishops' conferences in 1968 in Medellin, Colombia, and in 79 in Puebla, and they were responding to people who are reading the Bible for the first time in their native language, and they're going, hey, wait a minute, you know, we used to really be told to focus on these passages, the poor will always be with you. As I read this as a poor landless peasant, 
this really looks like God's on my side. And so the leadership of the church was taking note, and they were questioning things themselves and responding to the people and actually saying, you know what, maybe we need to turn. This is like official bishop conferences stuff going, we've been thinking about the church all wrong. We need to turn the whole hierarchy upside down. So picture the hierarchy like you got a triangle and then on the bottom rung, there's the people. And then on the top rung is the Pope. And then, you know, stuff ostensibly comes down to us through the Pope from God, whatever, however people choose to think about it in their own imagination. But the official church in Latin America was going, hey, maybe that whole triangle is upside down. And at the top is the people. It's everyone Jesus became incarnate to die for, and the church exists to serve them. Well, meanwhile, um, oh, and, and moreover, Bibles were translated not just into Spanish, but into common Spanish. So in 1972, there was a Bible translation called Latinoamericana, which now this is a Bible in a native tongue that is the Spanish you speak on the street. It's probably not as conversational as the message by Eugene Peterson, but something like that, approaching that, as opposed to the Reina Valera translation, which is the correlate in English would be the King James. You know, it's highfalutin language. It's using conjugations of verbs that people use in Europe. It's a very like, um, you know, you went from one holy language of Latin to another holy language that was foreign to people here. Um, Spanish is just different uh, when regular people speak it. And so suddenly now people are reading um, Bibles in a language that just feels really familiar to them. So people are going, man, it sure looks to me when I read this like God loves us. And the way the world is structured is not honoring that. Then in 1958, there's this revolution in Cuba. This is Fidel Castro. And whatever you like or dislike about Fidel Castro... He was a lawyer, a regular human being. He was a lawyer who did a lot of pro bono work for poor people. And one of those who was saying, you know, he was that air of revolution that we think of when we think of the 60s. That was starting to take hold in the late 50s. And he, the Bautista regime in Cuba, um, however much you dislike Fidel Castro, the Bautista regime, by all accounts, was oppressive and horrible to everyone except for the rich and to American tourists who would go there. I mean, uh, Havana was sort of like the Las Vegas of the Caribbean. And so then you got this guy, Fidel Castro, going, you know what? We could take over this government. And he did. You know, he trained 120 guys. They went there on a boat to the view that they're going to overthrow the government. The government intercepted them, killed all but a dozen of them, and a dozen people end up having education courses in the campo, de, in the countryside to get people on their side, end up carrying out a revolution that chased Bautista out, took all the land, put it in uh, socialist government's hands. The state took over things uh, from... The rich people's perspective that looked horrible from some poor people, uh, they suddenly had 
the best literacy, you know, in the history of the world, that literacy campaign in, in uh, Cuba was one of the most successful among homo sapiens anywhere. They had health care. They were poor. Uh, I don't want to get too far on a Cuba tangent, but I'm just saying that if you're a poorest of the poor person in Central America, you look across that little pond and that looks pretty good. Um, and hey, maybe we can do it even better. So what happened is a bunch of different leaders. Now, it, started getting the idea, hey, maybe we can take over. So it would be, it would begin with little things like the government's making a hydroelectric dam and all these people are going to end up with their houses underwater. That's unjust. We need to organize. And there were little pockets of organization for social justice issues like that. Often those leaders had ideas about how things could run. Now, when they tried to participate in the democratic process, um, they were an easy problem to fix. You just kill them. And that happened all across the country a lot. It, leaders of labor unions were getting killed. The teachers union leader was getting killed. In my first years in El Salvador, I, I, I dated a young woman who her dad was a teachers union leader and he was extracted from his house in front of his screaming daughters and murdered. Well, then what are the, what are, her name was Raquel. What were Raquel's older sisters going to do? Well, they joined up with wherever they could find a way to strike back at this injustice. So there are people now organizing. There's five significant revolutionary insurgent movements, the smallest of which, by the way, is the Communist Party. Most of these people, ideologically, they were fighting for something like Franklin Delano Roosevelt New Deal style stuff. What they wanted is representation in the government. Here's a weird irony. In great part, uh, the fact that people vote for their president in El Salvador is owed to socialists and communists who fought for the right to participate because initially when they wanted to participate, they just get killed. This is an extension of that hacienda system. Now, with a twist, now there are lots of foreign interests, primarily American interests in them. We used to call these countries, El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala, we call them banana republics because in those days there was a lot of money to be made by raw materials, whether that's they're just crops, bananas, and coffee were major ones. Sugar was another. And the rich were rich through the sale of those raw materials. We're kind of in a different world now. But at that time, there was a ton of money to be made but through the United Fruit Company, uh, which owns, you know, Dole, Chiquita Bananas, all the stuff we eat at home. They owned lots and they invest in lots. They in most of the Guatemalan railroad system back in that time uh, was constructed by them. And the State Department of the United States has called that our backyard for forever. In fact, um, and, and you do need to know, it would be a mistake to think that the United States was a pro-democracy force in all of this. That's 
Not the case at all. I mean, we may have loved democracy to the extent that we did love it um, here in the United States. But among our client states in our backyard, it was a different story. Um, there, These banana republics were governed by a series of military coups one after another. It was a game that was all about power. Who could you get to back your power? It was the marriages between business interests and armed military and paramilitary groups. So uh, uh, someone would become someone or the ruler of a country because they were a general and they just stage a coup and then they rule now. Now, finally, for the first time in Guatemalan history, Guatemala is El Salvador's neighbor to the north in 1945, they elected their first democratically elected president. You would think we'd love that. No, we didn't love it. That president, that tradition of electing your president lasted from 1945 to 1955 when the CIA staged a coup to overthrow them, to get people in power who were friendlier to our interests. Uh, Guatemalans look back in their history books to that period as the spring of democracy. It was one little democratic parenthesis, um, and democracy wouldn't return to most of these countries until after a series of uprisings and revolutions. Now, another thing that started these revolutions are land redistribution. I talked earlier about the legal status and the unconstitutionality of land land ownership. And so a big promise of these revolutionary movements was land redistribution to adhere to the law. Um, and so there were peasant groups, and I actually lived in one of these. They called them tomas de tierra, land takings, I guess you could call it. These were peasants who said, you know what, this is just unfair, and it's always going to be like that until we change it. So they would look into, um, they'd research, and they would find out who owns an unconstitutionally high amount of land and let's go squat on that land we'll just go plant some crops there and set up little shanties uh, to live in and they would do that and the goal was to get their plants planted and harvested and feed themselves and what would happen if you're a major landowner and you see that there's some peasants living on your land because they don't like the hacienda system, which extracts every dime out of them. And, and just a perpetual system of being on the edge of starvation. Well, what you would do if you're a rich landowner is you would just call up, if you're wealthy, you can call up the military. Or there were like five different military and paramilitary police forces or whatever. And those people would get rounded up and just, you know, M16s in their backs. Not not just men, it was grandma, it was little kids, it was you seeing your wife and she's holding a crying baby and, and the military is coming, marching you out of the hacienda, leaving your crops behind. You don't know how you're even going to stay alive. Well, now picture being a 17-year-old boy and grandma's crying and dad feels hopeless if you one day get a chance to steal one of those M16s and fight back, you do. And you, a friend of mine who, who 
who actually fought in the revolution. He told me, you know, you might think, why didn't they just use the tactics of Mahatma Gandhi? Why didn't they have a peaceful insurgency and revolution? And what he said was, Gandhi was a very, would have been a very inexpensive and easy problem for the government to solve. What they did with Gandhi's here is they just shot him in the head. Peaceful resistance requires appealing to the conscience. And for a lot of people in power, um, the people in power weren't directly the ones going out and, and shooting people. They were paying people in the military to do that. And there was a lot of incentive to just not have a conscience. And it was an easy enemy to demonize in the context of a Cold War world. So that's the other thing that has to be present in your mind during this. Uh, before, before Americans hated Muslims, Americans hated communists. That was the enemy. And so here we are in a Cold War world when the reality of it, you just got a bunch of people. They want FDR style New Deal. They want access to education. They want access to health care. Um, they want access, you know, just basics in life. And they want some land redistribution. They want the country to follow the Constitution says. And so you start having these uprisings, and then these uprisings start getting more and more organized. Then they have a vision for taking over the government. Then neighbors to the south in Nicaragua actually did take over the government. Then the United States was funding a counter-revolution against the folks that took over the government. The United States had a lot of interest in maintaining the status quo in El Salvador. In State Department language of the 70s and 80s, again, we referred to this as our own backyard. If you're my age, you would remember Ronald Reagan saying, look, if El Salvador falls to the communists, then Guatemala is next, then Mexico, then they're in our own backyard. And he would say all the time, for example, San Salvador is closer to Houston, Texas than Houston, Texas is to Washington, D.C. If we let it fall to the communists, they're in our back door in no time. The reality is there was a big threat of a bad example. If a people's movement took over and kind of made itself independent of the capitalist system that we were, everything was seen through that. It was, there's two big players in the world. It's the United States and the Soviet Union, um, and everybody's going to be on one side or another. Latin America could slip to the other side because it's happening right now with Cuba, with Nicaragua. Will El Salvador be next? So the United States was investing a bunch of money and ostensibly keeping order but it was the unjust order that already existed. So what is the Salvadoran Catholic Church doing in the midst of all of this? They're feeling a bit worried that the church will take sides one way or another with people who are being oppressed or with the government who's doing the oppressing, with people who want to stage a revolution or people who want to quash a revolution. And the archbishop spot was vacant, and the church very intentionally picked 
a guy, mild-mannered fella, faithful to the church, almost just not a political bone in his body. Uh, And they picked him precisely for that reason. They said, we need somebody who's not going to come down on one side or the other. We need an archbishop who is just faithful to the church and to the Vatican and who who isn't going to stir the pot, who from whom we're not ever going to hear any kind of rhetoric. And they chose a mild-mannered sweetheart of a man named Oscar Arnulfo Romero. So he enters into the position of archbishop in this environment. I hope that you will join in in the conversation. Give me your feedback. Email the show. Reach out to Paul Thomas. You can get a hold of him at paulthomasauthor.com or butterfliesbook.com. Give him some feedback. Tell him what you thought. Tell him what you learned. I think this conversation and conversations like it are needed for the church as a whole to come together as a community. I look forward to further deepening this conversation with those of you on the Patreon channels, and I'll see you all there. 